Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. You know, this whole passage, this whole season, this, the events that we see play out in Jesus' Passion Week, it could probably be summed up in a question. A question that's asked over and over and over again throughout Jesus' Passion Week and gotten wrong. A question that's asked by the Jewish religious leaders. A question that's asked by Pontius Pilate and the Romans. A question that's asked of everybody as they see these events unfolding before them. And here's the question. Who is Jesus? And this question, the reason that so many people got it wrong, is because they had in their mind these blinding assumptions, these presuppositions about God, about his Messiah, about the world, for the Romans, about the Jews. And so these blinding assumptions kept them from the truth that should have been plain to them, that should have been obvious to them, that should have caused great joy, that should have been good news to them. You know, even in our day, there's a lot of blinding assumptions made about Jesus. Even before we ever speak to somebody and proclaim the gospel to them, before they ever encounter uh, true information about Jesus from the Bible or a clear presentation of the gospel, they've already formed in their mind many blinding assumptions because of the culture around us and the caricature of Jesus and his church that has been perpetuated throughout our world. And so this, what we see in history as we look back is just as relevant for us today. And we as Christ followers need to be informed about these things for what God calls us to do in engaging the world with the light of Christ and the good news of the gospel. And so as we look at the events surrounding Jesus' death and his resurrection, we're going to take a look at some of this together today. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 43. Mark 14, starting in verse 43. You heard it read to you earlier in the service. Um, I want to set it up a little more with context as you're turning there. Um, Jesus has had his last supper, his Passover Seder with his disciples. And now he's gone out to the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing full well what was about to happen. And he is praying to the Father. And he's asked his disciples to pray. And he asked the Father even, Father, if there is any way that this cup can pass from me, that I don't have to walk through what I know is coming, then Lord, please let it be. But not my will but your will be done. And so Jesus knew, I'm sure. Have you ever raised up a prayer to God knowing that the events that are, you're praying against are still going to come to pass? You know, sometimes we, we make these prayers and, you know, we're pouring out our hearts. We're pouring out our frustrations, our, our desperation to the Lord. And we know he's not going to intervene and change these particular circumstances. Maybe these particular circumstances have to run their course. 
But still, we pour out our hearts to the Lord because he will be there to hear us and to comfort us and to walk with us through whatever we're about to walk through. I believe that's pretty much where Jesus was. And obedient to the Father, nonetheless, of what was about to transpire. And we're about to read again what happens when exactly what he knows is going to happen does happen. And the events that we know unfold over the next hours are all hinge on this moment. And so Mark 14, starting in verse 43, here's what we read. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they might put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. I don't know about you, but this still fills me with angst, with sadness over what Jesus had to endure. And this is just the beginning. For certainly he is here in the midst of a room filled with Israel's leaders, those who knew the scriptures, those who taught the scriptures, those who help to officiate the sacrificial system in the temple so that people can engage with their God according to the way that God had intended. Certainly, these are the people, when they ask the question, who is Jesus, should have been able to come up with the right answer. And yet we see that is not the case. And Jesus now in this moment, having been betrayed by one of his closest people, all the rest of them fleeing, led away by armed guard to this kangaroo court convened in the middle of the night. And everybody seemed to get it wrong. 
They were looking for a means to condemn him, and they were not happy to leave until they found it. Here's an interesting question, because the text makes it clear that they were trying to find evidence so that they might put him to death. Why on earth were the Jewish religious leaders so set against Jesus. We see in verse 55, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. You know, when we imagine the reasons that perhaps they had for being against Jesus, for wanting to put him to death, here's just some of the ideas that I've heard people talk about or ideas that perhaps we might imagine uh, as we try to think of what on earth were they thinking? So maybe they were jealous of his ministry and didn't want to lose control of the people. After all, Jesus went from place to place. He was speaking with authority. He was doing these, major, these amazing signs that people were flocking to him. And when they're flocking to him, the authority is going to Jesus and not to their local religious leaders, their Pharisees, their synagogue leaders, or the priests in Jerusalem. Maybe it had to do something with jealousy. Maybe they wanted to protect the delicate balance between Israel and Rome and Jesus' movement threatened to tip the balance. After all, it was a very tenuous relationship between Israel and the Romans who were over them. And all of a sudden, these large crowds were following this, 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 this Jewish person in all these public places and causing some disturbances. And perhaps they were afraid the Romans were going to come in and slaughter Jewish lives as a result of Jesus' ongoing ministry. Maybe they thought he was teaching things that were not true. Maybe they didn't agree with all of his teaching, and maybe they were afraid that he was leading Jewish people astray from right belief from the scriptures, and so maybe they wanted to put it to an end. And all of these were probably likely motivations that they had in their dislike for Jesus and perhaps even set them against Jesus. But let's be honest, for these men to be motivated to go so far as to put Jesus to death it probably would have to be something a lot more serious that they had against him. So what was it that these holy men, these religious men, these religious authorities had against Jesus that had made them so intent on making sure he went to his death? I'd suggest that the primary reason that they were committed to putting Jesus to death is that they believed he was a blasphemer. And under the law, Anybody who was guilty of blasphemy was commanded by God in the law to be put to death. So let's start with this. What is blasphemy? Believe it or not, uh, the dictionary had a pretty good uh, answer for this. I always tell my undergraduate students that I teach, please don't ever quote the dictionary. So I feel like a hypocrite today, but I thought this was a really good um, encapsulating definition. Here's what Merriam-Webster says. The act of insulting or showing contempt, or a lack of reverence for God, and or the act of claiming the attributes of deity. So in other words, somehow disrespecting or diminishing God, his name, his attributes, who he is, or it's somehow taking upon yourself these attributes, putting yourself in God's place is considered blasphemy. 
And certainly that's fitting with the definition that would have been agreed upon uh, by these Jewish religious leaders. And I just want to show you, so they're not completely, you know, out in left field in terms of their response toward blasphemy. Here's what it says in the law in Leviticus 24, 10 through 16. It says, now the son of an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father went out among the Israelites and a fight broke out in the camp between him and an Israelite. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name meaning the name of God, with a curse. So they brought, in, they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemith, uh, uh, the daughter of Dibri, the Danai. They put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be made clear to them. So they're asking God, what do we do with this blasphemer? Verse 13, then the Lord said to Moses, take the blasphemer outside the camp. All those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head and the entire assembly is to stone him. Say to the Israelites, anyone who curses their God will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. The entire assembly must stone them. Whether foreigner or native born, when they blaspheme the name, they are to be put to death. So in case Moses didn't get it the first time, God said it three times. That's the, that is God's instruction for those who commit blasphemy in Israel. And so... Perhaps that puts us in perspective a little bit when we think, what on earth were these religious leaders thinking in wanting to put Jesus to death? And so in this example, the guilty party insulted God, which was blasphemy. You know, multiple times in Jesus's ministry, his words or his actions or both were interpreted by the religious leaders as blasphemy. And of course, this is not because Jesus ever would say anything to disrespect God but perhaps the other part of that definition, that he claimed attributes of God for himself. More accurately, Jesus claimed a unique relationship between himself and the Father. He claimed divine power. He claimed divine authority. He claimed the, the very prerogatives that belong to God alone, Jesus claimed for himself at different points throughout his public ministry. And the religious leaders believed that he was worthy of death according to the law for these many instances that they had been made aware of because they were, in their mind, blasphemy. And as they interrogated Jesus on this particular night of his arrest, something happened to solidify this in their minds, to set their course against him. Uh, and they made them conclude unequivocally that Jesus is, in fact, guilty of blasphemy. And I want to highlight these verses. Perhaps you picked up on them as we read it together. This is Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 14, starting in verse 61. It'll be up on the screen. But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. So in this exchange, there's at least three things that would have stuck out to the Jewish religious leaders, to the Sanhedrin, that would have made them believe that Jesus was committing blasphemy and therefore was worthy of death. And I want to just uh, recount these three things with you this morning. The first is this one, 
Jesus' two first words in response to the high priest's question, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? He responded with a simple, I am. Now you might think, well, isn't he just answering the question? Isn't that the same as saying, yes? In fact, Jesus could have said yes. Jesus could have said a number of different things, but it's a very good chance that he chose these two words, I am, to respond to that question because they invoke a very clear picture in the minds of Jewish people of the time. In fact, I am is the name that God himself, the God of Israel, gave to Moses and was referred to by the Jewish people throughout their history. We see this first in Exodus 3, 13 through 14. Uh, it says this, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. In fact, when you look back through your Old Testament, everywhere that you see the word Lord in all capital letters, that word Lord is taking the place of the four Hebrew consonants that represent God's name, which means I am. And you know what? This is not the first time Jesus used those words and they were interpreted rightly by the religious leaders. In fact, we see this in John 8, 48 through 59. This is earlier in Jesus's ministry. It says the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying you're a Samaritan and demon possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this, they exclaimed, now we know you're demon possessed. Abraham died and so did all the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I, said I, if, if I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, and he saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you've seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Same thing. Before Abraham was, I am. That's not, very, that's not proper grammar in first century Jewish language, in Aramaic or Greek or whatever language Jesus was speaking here. Right? Clearly, he was making a point. And they got the point because they immediately picked up stones to stone him to death because they believed him guilty of blasphemy. What is Jesus claiming? He is claiming here when he says, I am, that he is the God of Israel. The second thing that we see in, our, in his encounter with the high priest is this, when he mentioned sitting at God's right hand. What was Jesus claiming by mentioning this? He's claiming to share God's throne 
and God's authority, something that no human being would be able to claim without committing blasphemy. And the third thing is this. He's claiming the term, the phrase, son of man for himself. In fact, son of man was Jesus' number one self-designation. He referred to himself as the son of man more times than any other way throughout the Gospels. So what did he mean by this, especially in the context he gives of his uh, questioning by the Jewish religious council? He is hearkening back to a prophecy made by Daniel in Daniel 7, 9 through 14. Here's what it says. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words of the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is a passage that has perplexed Jewish people forever. All the way back from Daniel's time even to today. Because what it pictures is this, that God is himself is sitting on his throne, judging human rulers for the ways in which they ruled poorly and not for God. And in walks this son of man, this one like a son of man who is escorted to God and is given by God in his court before his throne, sovereign power and dominion and worship from people of all nations. What person, what being other than God is worthy of such dominion, of such power, of such authority, and such worship? It stymies Jewish people as they come up with all kinds of ways to deal with this passage. And here, before the Jewish court, before the Sanhedrin, Jesus says, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, by which he meant himself. Jesus is claiming to be the one prophesied about in Daniel 7. He's claiming to be a divine figure worthy of worship and dominion. Here's an important thing to note as we look at this exchange after Jesus' arrest. That all of these things that Jesus said, that Jesus claimed, these were only blasphemies if they were not true. This was only blasphemy if what Jesus spoke was not true. And as we know, it was. In fact, Jesus provided numerous evidences that he was exactly who he claimed to be on numerous occasions throughout the entirety of his ministry. So why did the religious leaders jump to the conclusion that Jesus' claims were false and therefore Jesus must have committed blasphemy? 
Again, as we mentioned at the beginning, because they had their own presuppositions, their own blinding assumptions about the Messiah and about this Jesus before them, which guided their judgment in this moment. They started this whole process that evening looking for something on him that could make him worthy of death. They had already made their mind up before he walked in the door. So what are some of the blinding assumptions of the religious leaders that we see in this encounter? That the Messiah would be a human king. That's one of the, probably the prominent view among Jewish people of the time. Not the only view, but one of the prominent views is that he would be a human king, focusing in on that, the scriptures talking about him being a son of David. The Messiah would be a military leader. They are living in a time period where they are, have been under the oppression of foreign powers for a long time. And when they imagined the Messiah coming, it was one as a military leader who would rally Israel against Rome and overthrow them, setting up again a Jewish state, Jewish autonomy in Israel under this peaceful reign of the Messiah. They believed that the Messiah would come from within their own established religious authorities. Not some outsider, not some Nazarene, but somebody who they know, somebody who they all endorse, somebody who was under the authority of somebody else, and we all vouch for him. Perhaps the ideal of the Messiah was so great that there never would have even been possible a human person who would meet the assumptions of these Jewish religious leaders. Therefore, they assumed Jesus couldn't have been who he claimed to be. And therefore, the claims he made, even in their presence, were blasphemous. Again, verses 63 and 64, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. It all comes down to who is Jesus. It may never be a question that is, in, that is asked in those words. It may never be a question that is dwelt on consciously in the minds of people. And yet all of us, everybody, if they encounter Jesus in any way, shape, or form in their life, form conclusions, form blinding assumptions. And we certainly see it in Jesus' day. There are many also in our day. Here's some of the caricatures of Jesus. I'm going to share in just a moment. Because like the religious leaders, blinding assumptions cause people today to misunderstand and misjudge Jesus and all that he stands for, including his followers, the church, and even his very purpose in coming. And what happens is, as people form these blinding assumptions about Jesus... It blinds them to the truth. It puts obstacles in front of the gospel. It could keep them from belief. So what are some of these blinding assumptions of our day? Here's one, that Jesus never existed. There are several people I've spoken to in, in my time as a Christian who just deny the very fact that Jesus even existed at all, despite the mountain of evidence. In fact, even Bart Ehrman, who is a uh, agnostic, bordering on atheistic New Testament critical scholar, has said, whatever you believe about Jesus, the one thing that we know is he existed. There is just too much evidence for any thinking person to deny it. And yet there are people in our culture, people we would engage with, who believe that Jesus never existed. 
There are some that won't deny his existence, but believe that he was simply a great moral teacher. In fact, this might be the number one answer people give when, they, when you ask, who was Jesus? Oh, some great moral teacher. But you know what? As the, as the, the religious leaders made clear, um, you're not a great moral teacher if you start claiming these kinds of things about yourself, and they're not true. But many in our culture reduce Jesus down to just that, nothing more than a great moral teacher. This is a belief about Jesus I hear a lot. Jesus loves everyone as they are and imposes no moral standards. You might hear something like this, Jesus would never judge. Any casual reading of the gospel will show that that is an incorrect portrait of who Jesus was. He does call out sin in our midst. He does judge. In fact, all authority to judge has been given to him, the son of man. But he does still die on the cross to save by grace because all of us are guilty of sin. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about how we live. It doesn't mean that humanity is without sin, but we live in a culture that loves to be tolerant of everybody's perceptions of who they are and what they do. And it's wrong to say somebody else is wrong in how they think or how they act. And they put Jesus in that camp when Jesus himself would never be in that camp. Here's one I've heard also recently. Jesus is anti-religion and or anti-institution. In fact, Jesus started Christianity in rebellion against this institution of Judaism that existed in his day. Yeah, that's not what we see when we read through the Gospels. Jesus actually kept the law. Jesus was down in Jerusalem for the Passover festival because it is what was established by God for his people. And the same group tends to lump Christianity today, the church in today, with those very things that Judaism had wrong in their opinion. We've become just a big religion, a big institution, and so they reject it out of hand. There are so many blinding assumptions that stand in the way between people and the gospel, between people and the Lord Jesus. And we need to be able to be aware of them. And we need to engage them because, again, these blinding assumptions can be just enough to keep people from receiving the gospel. So who is Jesus? Who is he really? I think the good summary we find in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul is, is writing to this group and he's, he's actually using Jesus as a role model for the way in which they're supposed to treat one another. And he gives a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. And here's what it says. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, do not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, I love this passage for a number of reasons, but there is so much good information about who Jesus truly was embedded in these few short verses. It starts off by pointing out that Jesus himself is almighty God. 
God is a triune being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, and Jesus is God. He is divine. It says that his very nature was divine, being in very nature God. And so when we're talking about Jesus, he is God. And that also means a few things, too, that he's perfectly loving, as people tend to embrace, but he's also perfectly just, as people like to ignore. Because I use this example very often, so if you've been here for any length of time, I'm sure you've heard it. If somebody in our community was murdered, and we go to court to see as uh, the defendant is on trial, and it is obvious from the evidence and even his own confession that he did it, and the jury has found unanimously that this person is guilty of murder. But the judge stands up and says this, you did it, you admit it, we see it, but I'm gonna extend grace to you. I'm gonna go ahead and let you off the hook. So even though you're guilty, I'm gonna take the handcuffs off him, allow him to leave, you're free to go. And you're in that courtroom, how would you feel? Would you feel, oh, look what a wonderful gift of grace. What a loving judge. Or would you be angry? Would it burn you that an injustice has just taken place? Of course it would. Of course it would. And so why is Jesus's case any different? If God is perfectly just, then how can he just forgive us of our sins? Because he didn't just wash his hands of it. Because he, did, he didn't fail to administer justice. Instead, he took exactly the consequence that you and I deserved, and he put it on Jesus, who died in our place. Somebody had to die. Somebody had to pay the penalty. But by his grace, God provided a way in Jesus that he took it on himself so that we didn't have to ourselves. And so we see these be this beautiful picture of Jesus who is by his very nature God, but he did not use his divinity as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he humbled himself and he was willing to take on even human flesh and go to his death as an atoning sacrifice for sins because he wanted to serve those he created and loved and desired to redeem. And so Jesus died in our place as an atoning sacrifice because sin still needed to be paid for. And he is resurrected and he is exalted and every knee will bow in the end. Now, he calls us to bow our knee to him now. He calls us to share the good news of the gospel so that others will bow the knee to him now and not have to face the just consequences of their own sin, but to receive the grace that's offered to, to you in Jesus Christ. And so it is our mission as ambassadors to go out and do this now. But a day will come when the reckoning happens. When Jesus returns, when the doorway to be able to come in and accept the grace that God has offered is closed forever. And so there's some really stark realities, really important, crucial truths that we need to acknowledge, that we need to understand and that we need to take to others and that we might need to work through some of those blinding assumptions that are standing as obstacles to them hearing the good news of God's grace 
and rejecting it or accepting it. And so, friends, that's what we need to do here as we look at this season, this Easter season. We need to be proclaiming the truth about Jesus. Last week I said we needed to celebrate, we need to proclaim, and we need to defend. And I'm going to reiterate that again today. We are in a wonderful time of year that celebrates truths that are true all year long. But what a wonderful time to focus together on them and celebrate what God has done in Jesus Christ through his death and his resurrection. We need to be celebrating, but we also need to be sharing it with others. We need to be proclaiming the gospel to other people that even though they are absolutely guilty, they did the bad thing. They were rebellious against God or apathetic about God. They, they, they broke God's moral standard with their thoughts, with their words, with their deeds at innumerable times throughout their history. They're guilty. And yet God loved them so much that he put Jesus in their place so that they can have forgiveness and reconciliation with God. We need to share that so that they can avail themselves of that which God has provided for them. And part of that is going to be bumping up against those blinding assumptions when you share the gospel and they say, yeah, but, and whatever comes after that but, we need to dig in with we need to correct incorrect assumptions about Jesus and share the truth so that they could hear and respond to the gospel. Friends, would you do that with me this Easter season? Would you love your neighbor as much as yourself? Would you love them enough to share the gospel with them that they might have hope instead of hopelessness, life instead of death, and an eternity with God instead of an eternity apart from him. And can we celebrate together at the end of this Easter season those who have heard, those who are chewing on, and those who have responded to the gospel together? Thank you.